Well, things have not gone cool. I guess I could have called that. It's okay, it's okay. We've got Sussman and Kodo. And uh, Michael Grossman. I've mentioned him a couple of times. This is his final contribution to Trek. <laughs> it's just, it's going to keep coming up. I'm a little amazed we're still having people who are just slowly bowing out bit by bit. Uh, this is... Uh, so, uh, Grossman has directed a few other episodes, including Hatchery. And Forge, that was a good one. That was a good one. Um, we start off, prisoners dragged in. And um, they mention, no, my, my sentence was commuted! No, no! Ah. I wonder what it feels like to have cranial ridges dissolve on the fly. I don't remember off the top of my head if those are bone or cartilage, but in either case, Tuck, Tucker and T'Pol have a quick scene after this horrific display. And the best part is Tucker's just like, yeah, I'm out. T'Pol's like, are you out because of me? And he says, I don't know. and she says, you didn't answer me. And then he doesn't answer her again, just in a more complex fashion. And she just lets it go at that point. There's a bit right after this. It's when Phlox gets abducted, ironically, given what I'm about to say. But I want you to imagine feeling safe walking down the alleyways and streets of a city at night. Can you even imagine that? I mean, it's it's the Federation, it's Earth, specifically. It's, it's Paradise Earth, right? So, yeah, no, it, it tracks, and that's a cool idea, but I would have to really work at it to imagine such a thing. It's just interesting to think about. Anyways, and he's kidnapped. Thankfully, uh, Hoshi manages to hear something at the last second there. That's nice. That's nice. We hear about the brawl fight, and it's like, you. I'm sorry, what? You think some random anti-alien hicks managed to do this? This is a professional job. Interesting tidbit, though. Notice that she mentions, uh, I think it's Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander Com Collins, excuse me, mentions that there's still anti-alien sentiment and that it's still there in the background. If you remember, that brick was laid all the way back at home and here. And that's going to come up in the future. That's still a plot thread they haven't addressed yet. I just pointed out because I continue to mention how both Stormfront and Home laid most of the bricks for most of the mini arcs that we have throughout the course of season four. It's just some of them took longer because obviously some have to happen after the other ones. That's just linear time. And until, and when we fix linear time, well, then we're all screwed because, anyways. <clears throat> oh, you're kidding me. I just started recording. Well, let's see how far I get before it gets to the point where I have to edit the video to get rid of the people who are doing lawn work outside. Anyways, so then we see Seth MacFarlane. Hey, he's back! He gets actually a decent amount of lines on this. Here's, I can tell, completely as a, as, you know, like a, a, a nod, you know, or not a nod, a favor. There we go, a favor. Just because, I mean, MacFarlane is a huge Trek geek. I mean, be honest, wouldn't you want to? Even if it was a Trek show that wasn't really doing well, and even if it was just whatever, you'd still probably be like, yeah, I'll take that. Apparently he also transferred to the Columbia along with Tucker. Go figure. Okay, I think they've moved away. Sorry about that. I do like how seriously they take this entire investigation. I mean, duh, right? But it's funny, because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But obviously everyone wants Flocks back, because Flocks is awesome. What I find most interesting about this, though, is this leads immediately to Section 31. Oh, they don't say it, but it has been confirmed that this is Section 31, ignoring the fact that they name-drop it in the next episode. I... 
We'll come back to that in a second. <clears throat> we also have some clever blocking. There's the bit where they're going back down the street, and T'Pol is with them instead. This is actually pretty cool, because they could probably have done several of these scenes earlier with, you know, uh, with Jolene Blaylock there, just with careful camera movements so you don't show where she is. Or, and or, you could also do just, just do the shot and then immediately set back to one, and then do the shot again with T'Pol there this time and have, you know, the different scene that's happening later. Just a cute little trick, and it's some clever blocking I wanted to comment on. Anyways... So then we find out about, well, what's going on. The Kuvat colony, remember them, are having issues. And uh, this is the greatest threat the Klingons have faced since the Herc invasion. I could be off, but I believe that is the second of like three references to the Herc ever. Until we get to Star Trek Online, where we actually unveil what the Herc were. Just cute little thing. I, I remember when I first saw that, I was just like, oh my god. Because there's also the Fekliri, oh, excuse me, who are also related to that, but that's unrelated. That's unrelated, despite being related. But no, we find out that that's some interesting pragmatism on, on display here. You are here, and you are needed. Now, I mentioned that because it then immediately jumps from that statement. Not said, said outright, as I just said it, but that is the statement. And then it immediately jumps to the next scene, which is... Uh, the uh, Shelby or Kelby or whatever her name is, the the new chief engineer who barely gets any lines. Literally, Seth MacFarlane's character gets more lines than she does. Anyways, if if you ever needed to know that she was temporary, there's your answer. But this immediately cuts to her or him, excuse me, not actually responding immediately. I don't know why I kept calling her him or her. Uh, him not responding immediately and being like, "Well, we're already going super fast." It's like, "Well, we could go faster, right?" Tucker could usually get us faster. I mean, he would be needed if he was here, but he's not. Cut immediately. That was a terrible one. Cut immediately to Tucker and Hernandez, who are eating. This is also where he admits that he was getting a little bit too comfy. And it was causing him issues on the previous ship. Which immediately leads to Paul, who is then meditating. And then Tucker is there in the meditation. Let me ask you the first question. Do you think their minds actually connect during this scene? This is relevant, because it changes several dynamics going on here. But it also technically doesn't matter at all, because it doesn't change the core issue that both are on the minds of the other, despite everything that they say and think and do and feel. But it is interesting. The episode makes it very clear from the way the episode is structured that they are actually connecting. Now, this could be narrative cheating. One of the things fiction likes to do is show an event, and then show another event, and then show the third event, to imply that these are happening sequentially, when in fact they're not. This actually happened way over here, and this one happens way over here. You could also do this with location. They actually just pulled this trick with the Romulan bridge back in the Federation arc we've already had. So, you know, there's there's some stuff here that, that it could be interpreted, but it's pretty clear the episode wants us to think that they are actually connecting, despite being light years away, and one of them is actually in warp space at the time. This is why I just kind of hesitate here. I know we have to swallow a lot of things in Trek. It's Trek. But, really? They're mentally connecting across multiple light years, while one of them is in warp space, because one of them decided to meditate a bit? I don't know. I, I have trouble actually believing that. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. That, that, that hits the uh, meter a little bit hard for me. Either way, uh, this then leads to uh, Reed's mission. He has to dissuade the rescue. 
I have to admit, this is pretty pathetic, the way Section 31 is handling this. But then I started thinking to myself, Section 31 is pretty new, after all. I mean, they've probably only been around for less than a century at this point. So they're still getting used to the whole procedures and policies thing. And they're still probably spending most of their time dodging official interest and attention. Remember, by Deep Space Nine's time, Section 31 is known. When Cisco contacts the admirals, you know, what's about Section 31, they don't deny knowing about it. They just kind of sidestep the problem because they're aware that it exists because it's one of those open secret kind of situations, right? But here, one of their main motives is to specifically ensure that Archer doesn't get involved so that Archer cannot try to report this to his superiors so that there is no investigation and Section 31 can continue to operate in secrecy. In point in fact, I actually would believe that as a direct result of these two episodes, this two-parter, that this is why Section 31 operates more above board when it comes to the upper echelons of command going forwards. Hi, we're here. We're operating off the books. Any questions? Because it's just simpler and easier to do that. That way, if they do anything that gets reported and it gets up the chain, then those people know what it is and just shelve it. It's like, okay, yep. (laughs) And that's the end of it because that is probably the better way to operate overall. There's holes in that, but there's more holes in the former policy, at least in my opinion. Either way, the Makos continue to suck, and then we get to the 26-minute mark, and this is when the episode's point is made clear, or rather the two-parter. This will be addressed a little bit more next episode, but the whole point of this is continuity. Now, I've talked about this before, so I'm just going to kind of reiterate this point relatively briefly. When you have something like this, at this point of fiction that's been going on for just under 40 years, I believe, when this episode was going live. I could I could be wrong off the date, but it's in the 40-year range, one way or the other. You have choices. Roddenberry has actually really... Uh, there was an interview, uh, this was actually at a uh, convention, that he mentioned that he always believed there was no inconsistency between Klingons and TOS and Klingons in the movies and in TNG. It was just a difference of budget and makeup, and that's all it was. So they have the ability to do what they couldn't do, so they did it. And the end, right? And there's nothing actually wrong with that. Not really. It wasn't until Deep Space Nine's Trials and Tribulations that they finally decided to call this into question in-universe. Now, they had a few options there. I talked about that during that episode. The option they went with was to acknowledge it, but not to explain it. Now... That's that's cute. That's cheeky. Nice little joke. But as I mentioned during my rumination on that, what that did was suddenly opened a door that previously had been closed. Up until then, we could just presume budget, right? Technology of the times. We, we've done that with many different fiction. We've done that with Doctor Who. We've done that with Star Wars. We have done that with... Uh, I probably could think of another example if I thought about it for a second. Most of the time, these kind of things are just things we just sort of hand wave away because they just couldn't physically couldn't do back then what they could do now. A perfect example of this, if I might go ahead and talk about this for a moment, is the duel, if you can call it that, between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope. The duel, which is pathetic and terrible, in my opinion. It doesn't even have the impact or gravitas of the duel in Empire Strikes Back, my personal favorite, and it doesn't have the flashiness or style of the duels in Revenge of the Sith or anything after that. They literally didn't have the ability But we all just kind of hand wave that because, well, it was old and we get that, right? But by acknowledging it in universe, that makes it canon at that point. That makes it codified fact. And now you have to address it because that means something happened in universe. And this is not merely a budget and times limitation. 
And naturally, Star Trek then moved on and didn't do anything with it for years and years and years. It's no surprise that the big Star Trek geeks that are Sussman, Kodo, and the Garfield, or the Reeve Stevens's crew looked at that and said, we need to fill that plot hole. Because it'd been bugging fans ever since Deep Space Nine. And if you think I'm making that up, well, I can't prove it, I suppose. Maybe the Wayback Machine might be able to prove it. But ever since Trials and Tribulations came out, discussions on the, the ridges and the dis- portrayal of the Klingons just spiked. Because it was codified now. It was canified now. Can Canifoid? Anyways. <clears throat> so what do we do? Well, now we, we explain it. So they came up with this entire story arc, which is connected to a previous story arc which is also tangentially connected to another story arc that hasn't happened yet, just to explain what the heck is going on. So we see. Turns out that the, the Klingon augments are losing their foreheads as part of the hypermutation of the augmentation. Because human augment DNA being, uh, let's be kind and say crudely, mixed with Klingon DNA. And thus we have those Kling- those Klingons. Now... If you're paying attention, that's only part of the puzzle, because that doesn't fully explain everything. After all, in the future, Klingons who had been shown to be smooth-ridged would have ridges. And the implication is that these smooth ridges are augments, superhuman. So something has to change for so many Klingons, the overwhelming majority of Klingons, all of them, if we're being honest, but so many Klingons across TOS's time and TAS's time to have this presentation. Funnily enough... As I just mentioned, uh, Star Trek Online in the future would pull this same trick in reverse to explain how they went from smooth to ridges between TOS, TAS, and the motion picture, TMP. And I point that out because that's actually brilliant, the way they did it. I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's one of the earlier storylines. So you can play it yourself, and you should totally play it. If you don't feel like playing it, I've actually already done a lore run on STO, so you can just go watch that. <laughs> Seriously, it's a good lore run. It's one of my favorite ones. Anyways. So, we've decided to explain things away. Cool. I, I'm reminded a little bit of Rogue One. That thing has always bugged me, so I decided to make an entire movie to explain it. That's a joke. That's not why Rogue One was made. This then leads to the realization that Hoshi has uh, been having romantic dreams about Tucker in a white space. I just point this out, because they cut away before they can actually acknowledge that conversation. But to Paul's face, when Hoshi's saying that, it's just... Like, she gets this wide-eyed thing, like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, and then, and then you know, the, the episode interrupts, and so they don't actually get to deal with that. So, this gets to... So, so far, I'm liking this episode, right? Here's where the episode falls apart terribly for me. Really. This actually pissed me off. They discover that Reed's lying to them. Okay. Reed is then an idiot. Uh, then Archer is more of an idiot. Uh... Now, here's the thing. Maybe I'm just a weirdo, but context clues matter, right? And if someone is obviously absolutely torn up about having to lie to their superior officer, I don't know, maybe one of the first things I would consider is not the fact that he's a traitor and has sold them out to the Klingon Empire, but rather that he's operating under orders. This is, of course, Section 31. We know that, but even Archer is aware of the fact that Starfleet intelligence exists, right? He knows what a black book operation is, right? Now, Archer may still get upset about that, and that's whatever, but the fact that he doesn't even piece this together in this episode is actually kind of irritating. What's even more irritating to me, this is just me, is Reed doesn't do the honesty play. Sir, I am under orders. That's right, you're going to tell me. No, no, I am under orders, sir. I am not at the liberty to discuss this matter. 
it's uh, there's a term for it. And I forget what it's called, but it boils down to being honest without being open. You answer honestly, and you say, "I'm not going to answer you," and I'm not going to answer you because I am currently under orders. That really should give away the kind of information it needs to, since Reed is clearly not under some alien influence or has been replaced by some kind of alien thing. Those are things you need to take into account when it comes to Star Trek. And he is operating as Reed, and he is obviously really bothered by this. The context clues make it clear, yeah, no, he is he is conflicted, but he is following orders like a dutiful soldier. Now, you could still throw him in the brig if you want to, because security, I, I would actually, honestly, Reed would probably suggest that. That would actually make that scene so much better for me. Rather than Archer throwing him the riot act and being like, oh, I'm super superior, and I've got a big high horse that I'm getting onto, which is why this pisses me off, by the way, because Archer... Archer. <laughs> I, I know, I know. But Archer, a man who is tortured and killed in service of what he considers to be the greater good, gets all pissy because Reed lies to him. You're a disgrace to everything in that uniform. Piss off, Archer. Anyways, if Archer was trying to figure out what goes on, and then Reed says, Sir, if I might recommend, you should place me in the brig on the off chance that I am not Lieutenant Reed or I'm being influenced by an external source. and Because that would be Reed, right? It would be so Reed to suggest he be arrested just in case, just to be sure. <sighs> Instead, he just gets all upset and refuses to say anything. And it's just, it, 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 I, could, I could go into the nitpicks. I could talk about how Archer is being way too self-righteous here, which always pisses me off. I could mention how Reed is being stupid. I could mention how Archer is being stupid. Those are the three big points. But ultimately, all of this circles the same drain. Drama. And I, God, I, can't, I just can't stand drama in my fiction or in real life. So forgive me for ranting about this, but it's what drags down what would otherwise be an excellent episode down to merely average. Because the bulk of the latter part of the episode is dedicated to this stupidity. There's even a scene where Archer comes in and interrogates the Klingon, which is extremely stupid, by the way. That's one of those things you do when you have no other choices or options because it's not going to work, but why not? And then when Reed says, wait, I can help, I can be useful, Archer just leaves without even looking at him. I'm so upset at you for daring to... At least when Picard got all pissy, he would, you know, be played by Patrick Stewart, so there's a little charisma behind it. This, this just makes me want to slug him. Not that I haven't wanted to slug Picard before, so I suppose that's whatever. Still haven't seen the show. Anyways... I haven't even mentioned this before. Autok, the Klingon doctor, is actually played by John Shuck. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He, you may, he's done a few roles over the years, but you probably remember him most as the Klingon ambassador in both Star Trek IV and in Star Trek VI. You know, do you deny these events? We deny nothing. We have the right to defend our sovereignty. You know, that, that guy. It's just, it's interesting to see him play this much more affable and entertaining character than the asshole. <laughs> it's also been a while since those movies. But the other thing I find funny is he clearly is a Klingon doctor. The Klingon problem, which was actually mentioned all the way back in season two, the episode Judgment with uh, Kolos, J.G. Uh, Hertzler, is brought up again. That the Klingon warrior cast is just kind of getting to the point of preeminence to the point where it's actually damaging the Empire's ability to function. And this does explain, as I mentioned back then, the arc the Klingons are going to be going through through the next several decades at this point. 
But he is still very Klingon, and that's actually what I like about him. Autok, specifically. I mean, Kolos was uh, uh, Klingon as well, but Autok is also very Klingon. Not only is he willing to openly and quickly, without even hesitation, euthanize a patient who is actively dying so they can dissect him to cure more, because that is a very honorable act and is the kind of thing that is you know acceptable, but also he is more than willing to play politics, external honor, which is something that is very very Klingon, even at this era. You know, if you go, if we go ahead and manage to smooth out the genes so we could improve the augment virus and prevent it from being lethal, then you would have augments on your side, which you could use as a bargaining chip in order to bargain with the High Council in order to maintain not only your position, but your life. Meanwhile, Phlox is just like, no, no. But then... The sabotage happens. And we needed this sabotage to happen because otherwise Tucker can't get back on the ship. This is the reason, by the way. This is the reason the sabotage happens. It'll be interesting, unfortunately or otherwise. I remember exactly how they get Tucker back on board the ship. And it's a little eyebrow-raising, but we will be seeing that next time. <laughs>